and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. And welcome to this uh, rather extraordinary program that we have going around the world, on the other side of the planet, Africa, China. We're going to talk about China in a minute. Welcome to the other side of midnight in this uh, particular time slot where it used to be that anything could happen. And now, of course, anything is happening 24-7. I mean, all you have to do is, A, look around the world, and B, not believe everything you see or hear coming from around the world. We're going to be talking about sources this morning as we get into uh, the substance of our discussion with my guest, David Brody. You go to theothersideofmidnight.com, and you click on uh, The Other Side of Midnight. Um, that's, of course, our, our uh, URL. That will take you to our homepage. Click on tonight's banner for David Brody, all about the Templars and what they secretly brought to America. And we're going to have a lot of fun with this tonight because, frankly, I think the whole Templar thing is so much more important than even a lot of researchers in the field have uh, thought about. And I try to express those feelings in the summation of tonight's show. We are living at an extraordinary time in history. I mean, really extraordinary. It kind of reminds me of my mother's quote uh, from Robert Browning. um, Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be the last for which the first was made. This is the time for which the first, a la the Templars, as you're going to hear tonight, I believe, was made. We are alive now at this extraordinary juncture in human history, planetary, terrestrial history. And the decisions we're making right now will affect untold generations to come. That's how important this this time is, again, from the data, I believe. So if you go to the other side of midnight and click on that banner for David tonight, that will take you to his guest page. Right up at the top, you'll see fast links to items. Click on Richard. That will take you down in radio with pictures to my items. Number one, the World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus now a global emergency coming out of China. And the U.S. State Department has raised travel warnings to the highest level for people coming back from China. So if you're planning a trip to China, um not a good idea right now for a whole bunch of reasons, so I would wait. I would reschedule. I know plane tickets, money, and all that, but uh, you know, it's that old Jack Benny quote, you know, where he's kind of walking down a dark alley. For those of you who don't know who Jack Benny was, he was a very major radio comedian in the 1940s, and he was known as a skinflint. He was worse than Scrooge McDuck. Another out-of-time illusion. Anyway, He's walking down a dark alley, and a guy comes up behind him and pokes something in his back and says, your money or your life. And there's this long pause, which, of course, in radio is really long because you should never have dead air. And the guy says, hey, I said your money or your life. And Jack Benny says, well, I'm thinking. (laughs) Anyway, if you want to save money and save your life, I would uh, say the choice between the two is save your life. Do not go to China and don't try to come back because they'll put you into a 14-day quarantine. Maybe expediency will decide your your decision. Item number two, 
is the real number. I mean, this is why decision number one is don't go. Item number two, the real number of the coronavirus cases could now, and this was a couple days ago, so it's probably a lot higher, according to an independent science team spread around the world, connected via Skype, of course, you know, the Internet lets researchers anywhere on the planet talk to any other researchers on the planet. These are folks outside of the purview of the government of China. So, of course, we're going to look at them more closely because China has a reason not to tell us the whole truth. These outside researchers say now that the number of coronavirus cases could be in excess of 75,000, which would be 10 times the 700-plus cases currently reported. And, of course, that would mean if the fatality rate is around 3%, which it seems to be, if they're telling us the truth on that, that also could be 10 times higher, which means instead of the so-called 200 cases that we now have had reported from China of people who have died, it could be over 2,000 cases. This could be serious. And then, of course, you have various people saying, oh, it's all a plot. You know, it was biological warfare. The Chinese were planning on, you know, exposing the rest of the world to, and it got out of hand. And uh, again, in a situation where data sources are suspect, you want to look at a lot of different data sources. You want to look at a lot of different people writing, not just private blogs, but research institutions. You want to balance your sources. In other words, you want to be a sophisticated consumer of very important news that could affect you directly. There was a new case this evening that makes number eight now in the United States um, from Boston. Someone visiting in New York was admitted to a hospital with what looks to be another case of the coronavirus. And of course, in the era of air travel and train travel and highways all over China, I mean, the Chinese have spent trillions of dollars modernizing their nation so that any Chinese can get in a car. They didn't used to have cars, remember? And they can drive any place at, uh, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour turnpike speeds, which means, according to one number I saw tonight, before they close down Wuhan, before they seal the city, something like 3 million people in a city of, I think, around 19 million had already, quote, escaped because of the Lunar New Year. So it's very hard once these things get started in a modern interconnected age to put the stopper back in the drain. So that's mixing metaphors a bit. Maybe stopper in the in the um, faucet. The point is you're going to want to monitor this news very carefully. No need to panic, but stay on top of it. And if you're planning a trip to China, if you bought the tickets and everybody was psyched to go, my recommendation is, you know, wait. Wait a decent interval to see how this thing plays out. Okay, on the other side of the world, this is item number three in Radio with Pictures for me tonight. Brexit has arrived finally at 11 o'clock last night, Britain time, on the 31st of January. Johnson got his... Boris Johnson got his Brexit finally, and Nigel, whatever his name is, I forget. So they're all celebrating, jumping up and down and all this. Now, this is kind of the technical legalistic exit. 
the actual cutting Britain free from the European Union is not going to happen until the 31st of December of this year, which is what, 11 months away? Well, all right, 10 months. So we've got time to do something. We're going to do a very interesting show on Brexit. We're working behind the scenes to get the right players involved, and uh, that includes some players from England. And so we will announce probably in the next few weeks when we're going to do our Brexit show when, frankly, I need to do some boning up myself on Brexit because it's been such a whipsaw back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, particularly since Johnson was elected as prime minister that it's hard to tell the players without, as my grandmother would have said, a scorecard. So I'm going to go look for the scorecard, and do, we'll do all our proper homework, and we'll bring you a Brexit show worthy of the other side of midnight. You know, the old make no wine before it's time. So the, the deadline which passed last night is really not a deadline because technically Britain is still in the European Union, and it will not get fully divorced, whatever that really means. And we're not really sure tonight what that means, which is part of the homework we have to do until the end of the year. Okay, scrolling down. Bringing it back to the shores of the United States. The thing that's been so intriguing and at some level so alarming about what's been happening in Washington with the impeachment is not so much – the trial, not so much the fact that we've all known, barring some extraordinary event, world-shaking event, that Trump was going to skate. He was not going to be convicted by the preponderance of Republicans that control the U.S. Senate, which under the Constitution has sole authority for the trial. The problem is that we didn't even get a trial. And there's a second-level problem I'll get to in a minute. I mean, when you look at every other impeachment, going back to the first one with uh, Andrew Johnson, the first president, who came within one vote of being uh, convicted and being impeached and ejected from the presidency in 1868, every single impeachment trial since, which has been held in the Senate, had what trials obviously have to have, which is witnesses – and documents. This is the first trial in senatorial history, impeachment trial, which has had neither of these prerequisites for a real trial. So what we have seen has been basically the lawyers on both sides, the so-called House managers who are managing the prosecution and the president's legal team defending the president against the House managers – bringing the indictment in the showcase of the U.S. Senate. But it wasn't a trial. It could have been, you know, we could call it a presentation. We could call it an event. We could call it a uh, kind of a, you know, foregone conclusion party. It was not, under any definition of the term, a trial. Which means really that when he's acquitted Wednesday, which is the foregone conclusion, nothing really has changed. Historically, Donald Trump has been impeached. Historically, he will be acquitted, technically. But in fact, everybody knows the situation, and they know that it was a show trial. It was like a classic show trial right out of the old Soviet Union, where you have the appurtenances of American Republican democracy, 
but there's no there there. There's nothing beneath the surface. So then you have to step back, which I always have tried to do, and say to yourself, well, what's really going on? Why would the majority of the United States Senate basically leave the U.S. Senate with a stunning political and historical black eye, an obviously fake trial where the outcome was preordained. What could be more important than holding up the Constitution of the United States, which everybody on all sides has been giving lip service to? What would be more important on the part of the Republican majority than to preserve the honor of that other branch of government and to fulfill their constitutional requirement of a real trial, i.e. one with witnesses and documents. What, in other words, were they afraid of? And I don't buy for an instant they're afraid of a Donald Trump tweet. I mean, come on, give me a break. No, I have said from the beginning, as all of this has been going on in Washington, that it's got to be a case in this model of the biggest shaggy dog story in history. We are being diverted. The American mainstream press is being diverted. The resources of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Fox and CNN and MSNBC and PBS and all of the other lesser mainstream outlets all across the Internet, by which at least 50% of our population now gets its news, have all been diverted by this political circus going on not just for the last two weeks, but been going on for three years ever since Trump was elected. It's all been a show, with the ringleader, the circus master, being Donald Trump himself. I mean, who would be better than the you know major reality star in terms of ratings on NBC of the last decade or so than a guy like Donald Trump if, in fact, the plan on all sides, Republican and Democratic, has been kind of a shaggy dog story to lead all of us away from the real MacGuffin, whatever is really going on, we're not supposed to pay attention to. And we're going to grapple with this more directly next Sunday when Chris Knowles, my favorite symbolist uh, researcher and friend and colleague, is going to be joining us. And we're going to go through all of the symbolic evidence that what you see is not what is really going on, that this has all been a mega diversion designed to keep us from paying attention, certainly the mainstream press from paying attention to the real story which could be so amazingly unbelievable, but so critically important to our planetary future, that in the um, in in the kind of vision and and uh, metaphor of Brookings, they cannot let us know until a certain point what is really occurring. Now I've got a data point in support of this um, of this model. Again, if you go back to Radio with Pictures, if you uh, look at item number five, 
Mark Rubio's stunning statement on the Trump impeachment, where he says, in essence, yeah, Trump deserved to be impeached. This is the uh, senior senator from Florida who, you know, during the campaign in 2016, was saying avidly that Trump didn't deserve to even be elected, let alone be president, to stay president. Now he's saying, as one of a number of Republicans who are coming out and saying what Trump did vis-a-vis Ukraine is terrible, but it's not an impeachable offense. Well, this senator, Mark Rubio, Marco, says it was impeachable, but not all impeachable actions merit removal. This, I think, is a critically important clue as to what might really be going on. Because if something extraordinary is about to happen, and I would venture a guess that it has something to do with the Space Force, which then, of course, metonymically connects to things in outer space, which then metonymically connects to potential ET disclosures of the reality that everyone listening to the show more or less kind of agrees uh, is out there, but... They just haven't gotten around to telling us about it. And if that connects to the uh, revelation on Friday last, at the end of the first week of the impeachment trial, where the president unveiled the logo for the Space Force, which is incredibly derivative of Star Trek and the Federation. Hint, hint, hint. Can anybody say Emily Dickinson fast several times? In other words, Rubio's comment, which was last night, right after the final vote that closed the record on the impeachment trial. No witnesses, no documents, for the first time ever in American 243-year history. To do all that, there's got to be something bigger going on, and I think Rubio's statement is a remarkable window that whatever is coming – They believe for stability. Remember, that's what government exists first and foremost to do, to maintain continuity of government in the face of stunning changes. I remember George Bush's comment, uh, senior, when the Berlin Wall was falling and the Soviet Union was collapsing and some reporters said, well, why aren't you jumping up and down? You know, it's the end of the Cold War. We won. We won. And he looked at the reporter and he said, Stability. We must maintain stability. So for a conservative government, and all governments essentially must be conservative, i.e. they won't last very long if they're not, and I don't mean that with a capital C, that's small c, in the face of potential overwhelming change, certainly perceptual change, what is going on behind the scenes could require the most stability that we can muster, mister. And Rubio could be communicating the fact that he knows what might be coming, or at least he knows that something is coming. And if you read that, that, uh, that um, uh, link, uh, he even made a video and put it out. He felt it was important enough to say that impeachable actions don't always merit removal hint hint we need everything to stay the same because some things 
are going to change radically. Okay, end of um, political editorial for this evening. Item number six. Um, NASA over the weekend, I think beginning last Thursday on the 30th, said goodbye to the Spitzer Space Telescope. And if you want to know all the cool things Spitzer found and why they've had to shut it down and what would be a forecast of the next telescope in its uh, in its um, uh, family of the great observatories to come, which is going to be the Webb Telescope, super infrared telescope that's going to tell us so much more that we only can suspect tonight. But Spitzer has been an extraordinary um, one of the great observatories. Remember, it was only meant to last two months. That was its operational design life. And with all spacecraft, particularly NASA spacecraft, it's been in operation now for 16 years. You can't say you don't get your money from NASA missions. I mean, look at Curiosity. It was designed for 90 days. And it's still going and going and going, kind of like you know, the Energizer Bunny. Okay, item number seven. We're going to be talking tonight about the Templars in America. And there's a book I want to recommend to everybody's uh, attention. It's kind of a companion to the books that David Brody writes. But in this case, it's not fiction. And we're going to ask David, you know, why he chose fiction as opposed to nonfiction. I used to have all these, you know, arguments with Robin. She kept saying, oh, you got to write fiction. Oh, you got to write fiction. No, that's not my my uh, predilection, particularly when you're in an era where people don't believe your data to begin with. And if you fictionalize it, they're never going to believe it. At least that's my position. There's been so much evidence turned up over the last several decades from even before Barry Fell and his uh, famous book out of Harvard that it's not really much of a controversy to note that there's all kinds of artifacts in the Americas that came from long before Columbus. You know, it's kind of like when that first came out, it was, you got to be kidding. Now, of course, it's like, okay, show me something else that I don't know. And item number eight, of course, is a um, synopsis of number seven. This is a uh, scholarly kind of compendium on what the authors of number seven, the Templars in America book, are saying, not the least of which is hitting it directly on the head that, in fact, the Templars being on this continent hundreds of years before the Columbus sojourn is a very important historical data point to take notice of and to pay attention to. Which brings me to our guest tonight. David Brody is an Amazon and Boston Globe bestselling fiction writer and author of 12 historical novels, all orbiting around the concept of the Templars. His children call him a rock nerd <laughs> because of the time he spent studying ancient stone structures, which he believed were evidence of a pre-Columbian exploration of America. David is a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School. He's appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on the History Channel, the Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery. He currently lives in Newburyport, Massachusetts with his wife, sculptor Kimberly Scott. David, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And just get a little closer to that mic, you know, so okay. we don't echo too much. 
Okay, we've got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour, which means I can ask the kind of questions I always love to ask of new guests. How the hell did you get into what you're currently doing? What was your <laughs> what, was, great... what was your aha moment when you said, "Wait a minute, the stuff they're teaching me is not reality. There's something more." So, 14, 15 years ago, my daughter was in fourth grade in a in a elementary school in a town in suburban Boston, and she came home from school one day and said, "Daddy." I learned today who discovered America. And I said, oh, did you learn about Christopher Columbus or the Vikings? And she said, no, I learned about Prince Henry Sinclair. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and so about 15 years, I went down the, the Prince Henry Sinclair rabbit hole. And here I am still ferreting around in the dusty corners of history uh, in desperate need of a shower and a change of clothes. But uh, as you said, uh, you know, a dozen books later and, 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 a, and a decade and a half, uh, I am still looking at these artifacts and these sites and evidence, waves of explorers coming over here before Columbus. But it all started when a little fourth grade girl came home from school with a, you know, what did you do? What did you do at school today? And, and she told me. Usually the kids say, ah, nothing. This time she told me something and, and out I went. Well, you know, it's kind of emblematic of that old cliche, <clears throat> which actually is not a cliche. It comes from uh, the New Testament. And a little child shall lead them. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I thought that many times that if she had not come home that day, who knows, uh, you know, how my life path would have diverged differently. But, uh, you know, she did come home that day and I started researching this. And I remember being in second grade myself and raising my little hand because my teacher, Mrs. North up in Laconia, New Hampshire, put a timeline on the board and she showed how the Norse and the Vikings came over here in the very early parts of the 11th century. And then there was a 500-year gap until Columbus. And I raised my little hand, and I said, how come nobody came in between? Because I was watching Star Trek with my father ah. uh, to, to boldly go where no one has gone before, right? The human condition to go out and explore. And I thought, well, if they came over here once, why did nobody come back for 500 years? And she looked at me with, with that all-knowing smile that second-grade teachers often have. And she said, well, you know what, David? Maybe someday you can help explain that and answer that question. And so here I am, 50 years later. Oh, my God, she was psychic. She was great. She was a great teacher. (laughs) Uh, Well, we only have a few seconds here till the bottom of the hour. So when we come back, I'm going to ask you all kinds of questions that, you know, it's like you start out squeaky mainstream, you know, law school, Tufts, that that kind of thing. And then you get into this area that, again, academic folks, and you can actually update us if, if you will, Academic folks, if you bring up these ideas, you know, they kind of look down their noses and they say, well, you know, that's that's just all that new age stuff. Don't they? Yes, and I think I would, I would like to talk about that at length on the other side. But the basic answer is I was trained as a lawyer to analyze and evaluate and critique evidence. And so for me, it all comes down to evidence. And to me – it's overwhelming, the evidence. And so we'll talk about lots of pieces of evidence uh, over the course of my visit with you tonight. But as a lawyer, that's what I'm trained in. And so that, you know, to me, that's what I bring to the table. That's, that's the skill that I bring that others may not. My guest this morning is David Brody, who, besides being a lawyer, also got captivated when his daughter, age four, came home one day and say, hey, daddy. I know somebody before Columbus 
who discovered America. And his name was Sinclair. Boy, are we going to have fun tonight. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're going to be playing, by the way, Templar music all evening. I bet you didn't even know there were such things as Templar music. My name is Richard C. Helgland. Do not touch that dial because you're going to miss maybe the most important show we've done in months. See you on the other side. your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. You know, maybe it's my Catholic upbringing, but I could listen to that kind of music forever. In fact, that's one of the things that even after I stopped kind of believing in, a lot of the things that the church was saying, I I had this reflective moment when I said, you know, it's just they're the greatest game in town because they have such amazing music. And, you know, that's part of the culture, that tapestry, that richness that looking at history and the context of history can provide. You don't have to believe everything, 
But the cultural imprints of those who've come before have made almost indelible imprints, almost at the archetypal level of our souls. And yes, the Templars in America seem to have done just that. So, David, let's start from the beginning. So you figured out from your daughter, what was your daughter's name? Allie. Allie. So you figured out from Allie that maybe history is not quite as cut and dried. What did you do next? So we lived in a town uh, outside of Boston, Westford, and there was a local legend, still is a local legend in town, called the Legend of the Westford Knights, spelled with a K, like a, a medieval knight. And that legend was that about 100 years before Columbus, a group of Scottish explorers uh, island hopped their way across the North Atlantic, following the path that the Norse had taken centuries earlier, ended up spending a winter in Nova Scotia with the Mi'kmaq Indians, and then followed the New England coastline down to the mouth of the Merrimack River in 1399, came inland, and uh, climbed the highest hill in northeastern Massachusetts in the town of Westford, and there one of the knights died. And to memorialize that night's death, they carved an effigy in the rock ledge. And that effigy, that carving of a medieval knight, his sword and his shield and his helmet, uh, is still visible today in the town of Westford. And there's a historical marker there and an informational marker. And people come from all over the world to, to look at this. But that's the first exposure I had to all this. And, and you know, again, as a, as, a, as a lawyer, and at the time I was uh, young in my writing career, I was writing uh, – thrillers and whatnot, I thought that would be a fun thing to incorporate into one of my fictional novels. Ah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sure, This is the segue where we tell people, if you want to go see The Westford Night, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner for David Brody about the Templars for February 1st. That will take you to his guest page. At the very top, you'll see past links to items. Click on David's items. That will take you down to his section Item number one is a really cool, let me see if it's expandable. Oh, yeah, it gets much bigger. Rubbing of the Westford Knight. Go ahead. And it really is cool. And and you can very clearly see uh, that it is a medieval battle sword. It's not a colonial era or a more modern era saber or dagger. This is Mel Gibson and Braveheart. Two hands hitting you over the head, okay? So this is a medieval battle sword. And, and of course, you know, in and of itself, it's not enough to change history. Again, as I said earlier before the break, to me it all comes down to evidence. So I thought, okay, well, if this is here, this artifact, which is fascinating, but it's, it's a one-off at this point, if they really were here, there should be evidence, other pieces of evidence. And I like to say that as an attorney, I don't normally care about things like the truth. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Say that again louder. <laughs> as, an, as an attorney, I don't normally care about things like the truth. And, of course, that always gets a laugh, as it did from you. Thank you very much. Uh, but if I'm going to go out and write you know, historical fiction novels and give talks and be on the radio, I need to bring more to the table than one artifact. If we're going to rewrite the history books, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and we all grew up with that. If we're going to change that, there needs to be more than one piece of evidence. There needs to be, uh, what's the old expression, um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Yeah, let me so, stop you there. 
I sure. hate that saying. I really? Had, I had, of course, because I had up and down fights with Carl Sagan. I was just, I forget who I was telling before the show tonight, earlier this evening, that I actually, oh, it was Ron, uh, um, uh, you know, one of our one of our uh, imaging team members. I said I had a fight with Carl back in the pages of Omni when they did a, a an overview of our research into Sidonia. And I vigorously took Carl to task for that absurd, stupid saying, because science is supposed to be objective. Once you set one set of evidence above another, saying that one set of evidence is extraordinary and the other is, well, that's just mundane, you completely gutted the underpinnings of science, which is objectivity, and you measure science evidence against the evidence, not against your opinion of whether it's more or less important or more or less extraordinary. So for decades, I felt this was the most seditious thing that Carl could have done to the modern discussion of science by ranking some evidence to be so extraordinary or, or let's say the claim so extraordinary that no amount of assembled evidence can ever you know, catch up with the goalposts which are moving at warp nine down the field. <laughs> so, so, so I, I hear what you're saying on that. I think the difference is you were talking about the field of science, and where I am, we're more over in archaeology, history. Um, it's not a hard science, so the evidence. No, wait, wait, to wait, 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 wait. Let me, let, me stop you, let me stop you again. Why do we debate whether it's hard or soft or whatever? It's the method by which you sift the evidence. You know, you balance this source against that source. You balance cultural. You know, critique, you balance things like this rubbing, which had no business being in that location at that time, with other artifacts or other journals from the old world and logbooks. In other words, archaeology is a science if you approach it objectively by balancing evidence. You know, Richard, I'm not going to argue with you because you make a very compelling point there. Um, the reality, I think, is that if you're going to quote unquote rewrite the history books, you need to have compelling more compelling the, the, the reality is it needs extraordinary proof. And and maybe that's unfair, maybe that well, shouldn't be the way it again, is. Let but me it argue. is a reality. Let me argue because there are many examples. I'm just thinking of the current impeachment trial where according to a Republican senator, Lamar Alexander, the esteemed senior senator from Tennessee, he admitted that the uh, the House managers had provided the extraordinary, compelling proof that Donald Trump is guilty of everything they're accusing him of. And he basically said, I don't give a damn. Let the voters decide. Well, well exactly. So the status quo, in order to overcome the status quo, to use your impeachment example, there does need to be something extraordinary. If, if we're starting at the 50-yard line and just whoever pushes it one way or the other wins, then yes. But uh, as in the, in the impeachment case and as in the case in history, accepted history, there's a presumption in favor of incumbency. So and you're basically arguing that we're looking at cultural, political persuasion of the public, more likely the academic community. You know, when it's when it's right. Kind yeah, of, so we're trying we're trying to we're trying to trying to redirect the ocean liner. I mean, there's just there's just a okay, lot of momentum. Right. There's a lot of institutional. Uh, resistance to this kind of thing, and so I, you know, understanding that, look, it, and even to convince myself, I thought this rubbing was a fascinating piece of evidence, but in and of itself, 
I, it was, it's not enough, that one piece of evidence. And I figured that if these guys really were here and if there were waves of explorers, as I thought there probably should be, then there should be other pieces of evidence. And indeed, there are. There's been, we, we've uncovered a number of pieces, uh, other, other similar things, uh, carvings of medieval um, boats uh, in the town of Westford as well. Uh, there's some of the fascinating artifacts. Okay, so uh, let, let me ask you two specific questions. When did you do this? When did you find the Westford Knight? What year? So the Westford Knight, the first time I was at the Westford Knight was probably 2006, 14 okay. years ago. Okay. When did you become aware of Barry Fell's work from Harvard? It would have been during that year. So, I, again, I had no background in any of this uh, until that, and I started trying to educate myself. Uh, doing a lot of reading, including, of course, Barry Fell's book, America BC, which I think came out in 1974. Um, and he wrote extensively about uh, earlier explorers, earlier than the Templars. He was talking about Celtic explorers mm. um, way back in the, you know, maybe six, seven hundred, uh, six or seventh century AD. Um, but that would have been in, during that first six months where I was really ramping up, trying to get up to speed and, and educate myself. So you approach this like you were approaching a case, pro prosecution. If this is real, it should point me to other correlative evidence. And if it isn't real, I won't find any. Right. To me, it's all about how do, how do you win a case in front of a jury? I mean, I got, I've, I've got the jury's attention. I probably have your listeners' attention <laughs> if they saw this rubbing. And they're probably thinking, okay – but I haven't won the case yet. I mean, it's just one piece of evidence. There needs to be more evidence if we're gonna if we're gonna sway people's opinions. Uh, you had said something about archetypes and how people uh, who, who grew up Catholic uh, at a very young age had these impressions made on them on, on on their on their psyches, and it's hard to get past that. The same kind of thing again in kindergarten. We all learned about Christopher Columbus, and so we're able to get past that. But it takes a little bit of tugging and, and, and cajoling. It doesn't happen easily. <laughs> you know, we, we all got past the Easter Bunny and, and, and the fairy uh, and the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. But Columbus, oh, my gosh. Oh, but, I can still remember get, the, 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 the poem, Columbus Sailed yeah. the Ocean Blue in 1492. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. So we're getting there. So, But it turns out there – so two things. So it turns out during that first year, I found a lot of pieces of evidence, uh, mostly in New England uh, – rune stones, stone towers, other carvings. And then one of the other things I learned in law school, professors of evidence said on the very first day, he said, when you build your case, you've got to put all your, all your pieces of evidence on the table. When you build your case, you have to use every single one of them. You can't pick and choose which evidence you want to use. And then later on, when new evidence comes in the door, it better fit your case as well. So what we've, otherwise you're on the wrong track. And so what we found, what I found in the past, say, dozen years – Evidence keeps coming in the door, and it continues to fit what we think happens. And that's how we know we're on the right track. Mm. It's the stuff that came in later corroborates the stuff we believed earlier. Maybe you should be talking to the U.S. Senate. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. I don't want that job, but thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm looking at an image, number two, which has always fascinated me. Because you, know, you can argue a couple different ways, but you've got some real data points the Newport Tower. Right. The Newport Tower, for those of you uh, listeners who may have maybe haven't visited this, this is Newport, Rhode Island. It's a round stone tower in the Romanesque style, and, and, the, and the, the accepted uh, literature on this, the signage at the site, tells you it's a colonial windmill built during the 1670s. 
which is, well, thank you for laughing because it's really laughable that people think this is a, built as a windmill. It may have been retrofitted during that time period. That was the time of, of Metacomet, King Philip's Native American uprising. And so the existing windmill burned down and they needed something to. Well, to, well to given how architecturally fine. sound it is, it's like, kind of like, you know, let no good architecture go to waste. Right. So you might have retrofitted, but there's no way it would have been designed no. as a windmill on, on eight, eight shaky, uh, eight, eight, eight pillars. And it would not have uh, withstood the lateral forces. There's a fireplace in there. So you wouldn't be able to grist flour there because it would, it would explode. Uh, there were all sorts of different things. The unit of measure to build it was a Scottish L. There is a uh, fireplace flu system that's sort of like a a double flu like devil's horns that's unique to 14th century uh, Scottish architecture. A uh, group I belong to has done some carbon dating of the mortar, which comes back in early 1400s. Okay, I mean, tell, 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 people why, tell people why you can radiocarbon date mortar when you can't radiocarbon date rock. Excellent question. So in ancient times, mortar was um, made by using seashells because of the lime and seashells. And so we found a piece of mortar that had a, uh, a piece of a seashell still stuck onto it. We took the seashell to Woods Hole Oceanographic Society for carbon dating. Uh, and what Good was, question. And what was the date? Early 1400s. <laughs> so, right. So that, so that gets us there, – there's a, there's a whole laundry list of reasons, uh, you know, including Native American testimony, by the way, that – uh, you know the, the the people who were here, of course, back then were the Native Americans, uh, who tell us that that Prince Henry Sinclair and the Templars built the Newport Tower. You know, they come right out and, and tell us that. But there's all sorts of different things about that tower. No, wait, wait, wait. Did evidence. they actually mention him by name? Yes. Yeah, so, um, oh, and this is only recent. This this is one of those things that came in the door later. Oh my two gosh, years ago. that is really new news. Wow. Yeah, a, a Wampanoag tribal chief by the name of uh, Black Eagle uh, came around and said that our, our old history is that Prince Henry Sinclair and the Templars uh, came, uh, stayed with the Mi'kmaqs, and then came down and built the Newport Tower. So, um, so that, know, we're, that, that, that would fall in the category of cultural historical evidence. Right. You know, and again, Native American history is not written, and so, of course— People poo-poo it and say, oh, it's just, you know, it's their oral history. It's like playing uh, that game telephone when you're in six, when you're six years old at a birthday party and you whisper in the person's ear next to you and it goes around the room and it always comes out totally different. That's what happened. They don't know. But you know what? That's ridiculous. The, the Native American oral history is sacred to them. They cherish it. They preserve it. Uh, I think we can trust it. They're not six. Year, they're not six-year-olds at a birthday party. This is something that was passed down generation <laughs> well, after generation. Well, this is their own sacred history because, again, 21st century, uh, shall we say, skeptics to be kind, they don't value <laughs> the idea of written histories compared to oral histories, and that for an awful lot of human history, history was orally remembered and delivered, including in major, major religions, you know, like Jewish folks and, and others, where up until it was written down relatively recently, it was all oral tradition, sacredly preserved, kept sacrosanct, and, 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 and revered as an important, crucial part of whatever tribe you belong to. Exactly, exactly. It, it's culturally biased for us to say, because it wasn't written 
it, it's not uh, probative evidence. You know, again, using a legal term, um, you know, that doesn't look just because it, just because it's oral doesn't make it 100 uh, percent accurate either. We have to, we have to we have to be critical in our thinking, but we can't just dismiss it because it wasn't written. Um, okay, so there's I, that evidence. I don't want to um, lead the witness, but I'm going to ask you another <laughs> important question about the Newport Tower. Yes. What other attributes did you find out about it that make it incredibly unlikely that colonial farmers or merchants or whatever built this thing? Okay. So two pieces of archaeological evidence. One is that um, it's a round stone tower, but we believe at one point it had a wooden ambulatory around it, a walkway around it. And we found evidence of the posts that would have supported that ambulatory uh, uh, around the perimeter of it. So that's one. And then secondly, we believe it also would have had a chancel. So it would have been a round tower with an ambulatory and then a, a, a rectangular chancel. Uh, very similar to the design of something called, uh, no, um, some of your listeners might know, Temple Church in London built by the Templars. And mm. most Templar-style churches are like that, a round nave and then a, a rectangular chancel attached to one side. There was a remains... Uh, of, of, of the corner of what looks to be the chancel also at the Newport Tower site. So there's archaeological evidence indicating that at one point this was a larger structure than what we have today, and it looks like the design matches the Templar churches of medieval Europe. So if you were able to radiocarbon date the mortar from a shell embedded in the mortar, were you able to find in the – how do I describe this – in the foundations of this wooden ambulatory – um, meaning a walkway around it, they had to have posts in the ground. Did anybody find the remains of the posts, in which case you could radiocarbon date the wood of the posts? So yes and no. So we found the remains of the posts, but they were not in a condition, oh. uh, and I don't know the science behind a lot to allow them to be carbon dated. The other question we get related to that is, well, aren't there other artifacts uh, on, you know, that you could find in this dig that date back to pre-colonial times uh, and the answer to that is no, and the reason for that is because this structure was some kind of sacred structure built by the Templars, used as a baptistry or a church of some kind. And the, the simple answer is that people don't throw their litter away at church. <laughs> no, so this is likely. This is known all, you know, archaeologists in Europe always sort of shrug their shoulders at this and say, ah, his, um, religious sites are always pristine. There's never any archaeological find to be done there because people don't trash their churches. <laughs> they don't, don't want to offend their gods. And so uh, it would be nice if we found, you know, a, a, a medieval uh, tool or, or, or weapon uh, at this site. Uh, but again, because it was a religious site, you just don't find stuff like that. So we're looking at a structure that could be a half a millennium, 500 plus years old, right? We think around 1,400, 600 years, I think, is probably oh, okay. a good right. guess. So my question again, any other evidence, and I don't want to leave the witness, but <clears throat> there's one other major piece of evidence that I guess I know that maybe you're not aware of, which would be astonishing. The show does this often. you know. We, we, we knit <laughs> data sets together. So I'm going to give you ample room to say, has there any other evidence of the age? Oh, well, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep going. I've got, I've got a whole list. So um, and, and I was sort of doing it in the order that I, I sort of came across it. But probably the most compelling piece of evidence we have is some of the, the cartographic evidence, the maps. 
Most importantly, there's a map, uh, Mercator's world map of 1579 um, shows at the, at the latitude of 41 and a half degrees, which is exactly Newport, right. shows a, um, a European uh, uh, design build. It looks like a, it looks like a church. It looks like a church. Uh, right at, at the what we know as Narragansett Bay. So again, this is 1569. Pardon me, I think I said 79. 1569. So this is before, of course, it's before the Pilgrims. It's before Jamestown and Popham Beach in 1607. It's before Roanoke in 1585. And this is Mercator, who's a, you know probably the most famous map maker we have. 1569, clearly showing a European settlement in Narragansett Bay pre-colonial oh, wait, wait. time. This is an original Mercator map done by Mercator himself? Yes. Oh my gosh. That is and really is not, huge. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing. And again, this is, you know, it's hard to get past because the latitude, back then people, the, the uh, cartographers and navigators weren't great at longitude. That was hard. But latitude, they were really good at. And this is the exact latitude, 41 and a half degrees is exactly Newport. So well, there's, there, there, there's well. a very, very important reason, which I presume you know, right? Yes. I'm not sure we need to get into all the detail of that, but but <clears throat> you need you need some kind of accurate timepiece to, exactly. to do longitude back. Exactly. Whereas <clears throat> latitude, you just look at where Polaris is. Right. So so again, so you know, and we'll get, maybe we'll get to Columbus later on. But we, one of the things I think Columbus was doing. Uh, probably when he came over later was he probably had access to Templar maps, and it may be that he was as far west as Nova Scotia in 1477, taking longitudinal readings during a solar eclipse because one of the few times you could actually get some good longitudinal data was during the eclipses. But we can get to that later. But the right, point is right. about this map is it was it it, it it shows that there was a memory of some kind of European settlement pre-colonial in. Narragansett Bay in Newport, Rhode Island. My God. Okay, go through the rest of the evidence. We've got about five minutes till the uh, top of the hour. Oh, yeah, all right, good. So give me the one that you're thinking of because I've got, I've got, you know, I've got, a, there's a winter solstice alignment. There's, I mean, there's That's all sorts what I of was things. thinking of. Okay. So, okay. Celestial alignments. Yes. So on the winter solstice, there's a, there's a fascinating, and this is one of those ones that's hard to do on the radio, <laughs> but essentially what happens is on the winter solstice, I think we have a couple minutes till the break. There's a and, and 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 to go to the tower, the first thing I do is I show people this crazy shaped window. You would think as you know as a stonemason you'd make a nice rectangle or square if you wanted a window, but this window is is seven or eight sided. It, it's it's like a you know if a three year old trying to draw a rectangle and he couldn't do it right. Okay, and you say what kind of self respecting stonemason would ever say I want my wages, sir? There's your window. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the foreman would say, go fix the damn window. That's terrible. But it turns out that that's a really important design, that that window was designed like that on purpose, because what happens is on the winter solstice, the rising sun comes through that window and makes a light box on the opposite mm. interior side of the tower. Oh my! And God. as the light box moves across the back of the tower, it changes shape. And when it gets to the point where it needs to be, and I'll explain that in a second, it makes a perfect rectangle, okay? And, we're, and so right at 9 o'clock on the winter solstice, and only on the winter solstice, the time of monastic prayer at 9 o'clock, the, the light box frames the only ovular-shaped keystone. There's eight arches, and each arch has 
a keystone. There's only one that's an oval shape, an egg shape. But the light box frames that oval shaped keystone right at nine o'clock. Uh, and essentially what that is, it's a very allegorical event that we're talking about on the winter solstice, the sun getting uh, uh, lower and lower on the horizon, the days getting shorter and shorter. And what we have is on the winter solstice, the sun, which is a historical male symbolic deity, the deity of the, the symbolism of the, of, the, of the male deity is the sun, coming in and fertilizing inside the round womb, inside the tower, fertilizing the egg basically uh, uh, symbolizing rebirth, the rebirth of the sun, the S-U-N, not S-O-N, as we often uh, associate the winter solstice with. But this, is, this, this phenomenon occurs on the winter solstice, and it, it's an amazing thing because the sun comes right in and it pops right on that egg, and you have this almost a, a sunburst happening, and it really is a, a moving thing. It's hard to describe, again, without pictures. But this happens on the winter solstice, and it's almost impossible to believe that a colonial design would just happen to have this this thing, this, this phenomenon occur. It, it has to be designed. It has to be designed by people who are concerned with things like the changing of the seasons, um, uh, the type of thing the Templars were concerned about. Which, as far as we know, <clears throat> early American colonialists, A, didn't think about, didn't know how to do and didn't have the long database of observation that would have been required to do it. And they had almanacs. They didn't need to. Exactly. <laughs> okay. okay, my guest this morning is David Brody. We're talking about something extraordinary, which is pre-Columbian visits to the New World centuries before history currently acknowledges that anybody was here except Native Americans. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>